welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I've called the series It Ain't Necessarily So. Um, that, that's a song title from an opera called Porgy and Bess, where some character in the opera sings the song and he's expressing some doubts about statements that are found in the Bible and stories that are found in the Bible. And he says that the things that you're liable to read in the Bible ain't necessarily so. And the goal of the series was really to talk about some, what, what I've called urban legends, things that Christians often buy into and believe without any question, without thinking of them or thinking through them. They take on a life of their own and... Um, and I hear people say things, actually this series was born not out of sort of theological thinking, but pastoral um, responding. I hear people say things, and when they say them, or when I hear these stories, they make me think, and I think, you know what, I don't know where you get that idea from, but that idea carried to its logical extreme could be unbelievably dangerous for you in terms of just straight out disillusionment and disappointment when those things hit the rocks. And people who feel like God has terribly let them down and, and hasn't fulfilled promises that, that I actually think he probably never has made. So um, we've, we've made our way through four of these, uh, or three of them, and I'm going to do the fourth this evening. Um, the first one was if you've got enough faith, it can fi- you can fix anything. The second one we did last Sunday night was um, don't judge, don't judge anybody. Um, the one that I did this morning was everything happens for a reason, a God reason. God's behind all of the things that happen. And tonight I want to talk about the fact that all will go well with me and mine if we follow God, if I follow God. And I want to start with a couple of stories. Uh, a number of years ago, we had a family return from missionary walk, work, uh, and I asked them to talk about their experiences one Sunday morning, and they did so and did very well. Um, but the lady said something in the midst of her talk that really caught me and got me thinking, and I remember com- commenting it on the way home as I was driving with Karen. And um, I, I, it was a long time ago, so I don't remember the whole context of the talk, but I, I think it was in response to people who had questioned the wisdom of this couple taking their young children to a very poor and quite dangerous part of the world. And her response was this. She said, I knew my children would be fine because we were in the will of God. I knew we, we would be safe because we were in the will of God. And I remember thinking at the time, since when has been being in the will of God an ironclad guarantee of safety? I don't recall the Lord saying that. I don't recall any scriptures really saying that. And furthermore, what does that say about the many, many missionaries over the years who have taken their families to foreign fields and have paid a terrible cost in terms of the loss of family members? Were they not in the will of God? So pastorally, as I say, these questions bother me, and I go away and think about them, and I think, where does that thinking come from, and how do we address it? The second story was actually an encounter with an old school friend of mine who, as I talked with him, 
told me about the fact that he'd just lost his business, a business that he'd spent many years building and, and countless hours and lots of money building up and some business deals had gone wrong and, and he was angry and, and quite bitter and he was railing against God really. Why would God let this happen to me? I mean, what's the point of following God when these th- kind of things happen? I even tried tithing. And, and look, and look what's happening. Now, in both of those two cases, though they are different stories, there's a clear underlying assumption. And I think many, many Christians buy into this assumption. It is that if I follow God, then he will make my life better. He will make my life more successful. He will make my life safer. He promises temporal, material blessings if I follow him. Now, it's relatively easy to see why such an assumption is so common. In many Christian circles, there is a strong emphasis on a spiritual life that really does look like an unbroken flow of joy and peace and miracles and material prosperity. I came out of a church like that in my early years. Um, The deep assumption, while not always articulated publicly, is nevertheless the idea that to be saved, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, opens up a blessed life that basically looks like a trouble-free existence where one's problems are solved quickly, where miracles abound, and where parking spaces always become vacant just when I need them. Some people tell us that a miracle a day is the norm. And that if you don't experience constant supernatural manifestations, then it's because you are spiritually subnormal. And, and you hear things like, we are king's kids, and the resources of his kingdom are ours in the here and now, always. And you know what? There is just enough truth in those assumptions to make them very palatable to a large number of people. There's some truth in The fact that when people come to Christ, their life changes for the better. Sociologists have long noted a principle that they call redemption and lift. And it's based on the observation that when people come to faith, often their lives are dramatically impacted. They can turn from drunkenness and profligate lifestyles. They don't gamble. They don't waste their money. They suddenly begin to love their families instead of neglecting them. And all of that results in a dramatic change of life and financial circumstances improving. And we know that holy living with self-discipline, with diligence and, and, and living according to a higher purpose often will have spill-off economic benefits. Um, again, sociologists have described this, describing it as the Protestant work ethic. Life changes and there is redemption and lift. But such material improvements are not a guarantee. And that has to be balanced with the reality that in some parts of our world, at some periods of time, coming to faith was much more likely, actually, to get you arrested. It was more likely to introduce you to poverty than to relieve you of poverty. It was often the case that coming to faith would get you killed. In November this year, we have the opportunity of having... Andrew White come, and he's going to be at Gateway for a Sunday. Andrew White is probably better known as the vicar of Baghdad. 
And I don't know if you've heard of this man. He is a remarkable character, just an unbelievably gifted person. He was a medical doctor. Actually, he was an anesthetist. He served as the anesthetist to the surgeon who was Bashar al-Assad, the present president of Syria. And so Andrew White knows Netanyahu. He was a friend of Yasser Arafat. He knows... Bashar al-Assad, and, and he's now working in the Middle East. He works in Baghdad. He pastors an Anglican church there, uh, and it's a remarkable church. And I heard him tell the story how one year they had something like 1,200 people baptized, Iraqi people, who are coming to faith. They baptized 1,200 of them. In that same year, they buried 700 most of them, who, those people who had baptized. Because in that part of the world, coming to faith is no guarantee of a blessed life. It's probably a guarantee of a very, very short one. Um, by the way, really recommend that if you can come and hear uh, Andrew, you will be stunned by, by this um, inc- incredible testimony of what God's doing in and through his life. Taking portions <coughs> of truth and highlighting just shards, splinters of truth, has led to a distortion of the gospel that we sometimes derisively call the prosperity gospel. Probably born in the US, this brand of the gospel actually has reached out throughout the world. And in the places that I've been, which are mostly third world places, this take on the gospel has become incredibly popular, and you can really understand why. These people are poverty-stricken. So a gospel that comes and promises them redemption, lift, uh, and economic blessings um, is incredibly welcomed. In the prosperity gospel, the idea that God, or rather following God, results in safety, security, prosperity, and success is not an underlying assumption. It's an on-the-surface, entry-level promise. You know, you follow God, you do this with your money, God will do these things. He will bless you, there will be prosperity. And as I say, there's just enough truth in some of these things to make them palatable. There are passages in Scripture, there are in its stories and principles enough of the truth that can create um, a a distortion that, that, as I say, we call the prosperity gospel. Uh, From the Old Testament in particular, possibly a case could be made for God's temporal or material blessings follow those, uh, following those who, who follow him. For example, Abraham, the other patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of these people were incredibly wealthy people. Um, Job, uh, uh, you know, his story aside, both at the, end, uh, at the beginning and the end of his story was a, a supremely wealthy person. You know, the principles outlined in, for example, the book of Proverbs certainly leave you with the feeling that if you follow God, temporal material blessings will follow you. For example, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, and everything you do, put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Then there are passages like the Deuteronomy 28 passage where God promises his people, Israel, prosperity if they follow him. You know, you'll get fruit in the ground and and your life will go well. But if you turn from me, then suddenly Deuteronomy starts talking about the the unraveling of lives in, in terms of people who don't follow God. So you can come away with the idea on on which the prosperity gospel is built that following God means that your life will be much better, much safer, much more successful, much more prosperous. 
But you do have to read the scripture selectively and in isolation from the whole of the story in order to come up with that. To read the story of the patriarchs, for example, is not to read a story of an unbroken flow of material blessings, peace, joy, and protection. There were a whole lot of high points, but there were a lot of low points. To read the story of Job and only see the material blessing at the beginning and the end is an exercise in missing the point. The book of Proverbs is a book of general principles, not a book of specific promises. To read Proverbs as promises is to set yourself up for disappointment and disillusionment. And if you're looking at Israel's story, the, Genesis, the Deuteronomy 28 portion, for example, you have to read those promises of material provision in a wider context. Not all of the, the Israeli people were, were incredibly wealthy. You know, the Mosaic code that was given to the people had a great deal to say about how poor people should be treated within this community of faith. For example, rich landowners were instructed to not harvest the corners of their fields, but to leave them so that poor people could come and glean them. The clear implication was there will be poor people among you, even in the community of faith. Even Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. It would be a gross misrepresentation too, by the way, to say, well, if they were poor, they must have been ungodly. There were many of those poor who were godly. And so this idea of material temporal blessings following godliness isn't the whole picture even in the Old Testament. The Mosaic Code, for example, speaks a great deal about the correct treatment of slaves. Now, I know that bothers a lot of people because they immediately tend to think of slavery in, through the filter of pre-Civil War American slavery. And the slavery of the Bible isn't like that. It wasn't like that. It was much more like indentured servant, uh, servitude, you know, where you, you were paid. There was a, it wasn't like American slavery. The point, however, I'm trying to make is that, that that kind of slavery often resulted from financial reversals and the subsequent poverty that happened. Obviously, even within the community of faith, not everybody experienced success and prosperity. And to think, you know, if you're godly, you get success. If you're ungodly, you don't. Um, what does that say about people who were slaves in that community of faith? It obviously says, well, they must have been ungodly. Well, they weren't. The reality is early Christianity happened mostly in the early years among the slave population of, of Rome. So clearly then, while following God can, sometimes does, impact financial aspects of people's lives, and their lives do get redeemed and lifted, there are, there are no ironclad guarantees offered or promised. The, the Old Testament is far more nuanced than the simple notion offered by the prosperity gospel that in following God, the results will always be success, safety, prosperity. I know I'll be safe. I know my kids will be safe because I'm following God and I'm in the will of God. Now, when you turn to the New Testament, it seems to me that there are even fewer passages and fewer stories that can be construed to mean that following Jesus will make your life easier, better, richer, and more successful than it was before. Jesus most certainly did not promise that to his disciples. He did not promise a successful, as the world defines it, trouble-free life. On the contrary, he said, here in the earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. 
speaking to people who were following him. He said, life will be tough, John chapter 16, verse 33. The idea that following him could be very costly and not exactly conducive to material wealth, security, and safety was specifically laid out by Jesus in the preamble, not hidden in the fine print. He told his disciples right up front, you follow me, you take up your cross. You daily deny yourself. Life will be tough. They will do this to the master. They will do this to those who follow him. Listen to just a few of these passages I'm going to read to you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10, 12. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. Persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is far too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens, give a cheer even. For though they, though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. I don't know how you can read that and come up with the prosperity gospel. This is the preamble. Jesus is not hiding this in the fine print. He's just saying, follow me. You're in for some difficulties because the world hated me and it will hate you. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For anyone who keeps his life for himself shall lose it. And anyone who loses his life for me shall find it again. Luke chapter 14. Anyone who wants to be my follower must love me far more than he does his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters. Yes, more than his own life. Otherwise, he cannot be my disciple. And no one can be my disciple who does not carry his own cross and follow me. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first getting estimates and then checking to see if he has enough money to pay the bills? Otherwise, he might complete only the foundation before running out of funds. And then how everyone would laugh. See that fellow there they would mock? He started the building and ran out of money before it was finished. Or what king would ever dream of going to war without first sitting down with his counselors and discussing whether his army of 10,000 is strong enough to defeat the 20,000 men who are marching against him. If the decision is negative, then while the enemy troops are still far away, he will send a truce team to discuss terms of peace. So no one can come, become my disciple unless he first sits down and counts his blessing and then renounces them all for me. This is Christianity 101. Life involves a cost. Following me will be costly, Jesus says. You want to start right at the beginning and figure out, have I the resources to follow through on this decision? When, when we invite people to come to Christ and say, look, Jesus will meet your needs. He'll, he'll heal your marriage. He'll heal your body. He'll do this, that, and the other thing. I, I, honestly, um, while Jesus can and does do all of those things, the preamble tells us you follow Christ, you're in for a life of difficulty. You're in for a life of trouble. Get used to it. Pay the, pay the cost right up front. By the way, there is a cost of following Jesus, but there's an even greater one for not following him. You, you will pay a cost. Life is costly. What about John chapter 15? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute, they will also persecute you. I said, given the very plain scriptures here, 
It would seem it's most unlikely that the disciples faced trouble, persecution, and reversals of all kind, and then that they came to Jesus and said, we're shocked. We're disappointed. We're disillusioned. Why is this happening to us? Where's the life of prosperity and joy? And where's where's this easy road that you promised? Jesus said, when I talk about an easy road, didn't I say the gate is narrow and the road is, 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 it's a hard road? Jesus never promised us unbroken prosperity or, or, or even safety. He just said, follow me. And I'm telling you right up front, that following could be unbelievably costly. We in our Western bubble find this so difficult to compute. In the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, in other places throughout the world, when they come to Christ, they know that this could shorten their life dramatically, that many of their family members will be on a quest to kill them as infidels. We've got a young man in our congregation who has just told his parents that he's following Jesus, and it's liable to get him completely cut off He weighed that cost up. He thought very, very carefully. But he decided the cost of following Jesus was worth even losing his family. And only just a month or so ago, fear and trepidation, he called his family to let them know. And at this point, we don't know how that's going to work out for him. But I'm telling you, following Jesus for most of our world is not an easy thing. It's not a guarantee of prosperity. It's not a guarantee of safety. It's not a guarantee of security. But Jesus never promised that it would be. Of the 11 11 of the original disciples paid for their commitment by being martyred. The early church was a persecuted minority for the first several centuries of existence. I could turn you to passages in James, in the book of Hebrews, in in the book of Revelation that clearly shows that life for early believers and for believers actually throughout the world was never one that could be described as safe, secure, or prosperous. As I say, their faith was much more liable to get them killed than it was to get them promoted. The New Testament reveals that we live in a world that's affected dramatically by the backwash of Adamic rebellion, and we live in the crosshairs of a cosmic warfare. Powers that are arrayed against God and therefore against God's people. We, we sometimes say, well, you know, Christian life is like a warfare. Listen, Christian life isn't like a warfare. The Bible says Christian life is a warfare. So when... Westerners mostly say, why do bad things happen to good people? You want to look and, and say, read the, read the Bible. I, I, why would bad things not happen to good people? Bad things have happened to good people since the beginning of time. You know, the first family, one brother killed another brother. That, that's life in a world that's filled with Adamic rebellion and fueled by demonic hatred. Life is not pro- we're not promised an easy life. Life isn't like a war, it is a war. And warfare demands courage, self-discipline, sacrifice. The life that you and I are called to as Christians includes weariness, toil, pain, and sometimes death. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That word hardness, by the way, is a Greek word that means affliction and trouble. Sometimes when we get into affliction and trouble, we whinge. We, why? Why is this happening to me? I didn't sign up for this. Yes, you did. It's in the preamble. You didn't read it. Most of us don't, you know, do we? We get these contracts. Have you read the terms? And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Click. None of us read it. And then we, then we wonder, why, why, why is this happening? Well, didn't you read paragraph one? N- no. What well, says, take up your cross and follow me. If, they, if the world hated me, they'll hate you. Oh, I didn't sign up for that. How is it possible that we can read anything like the passages that I just read to you and then say, I know I'm safe because I'm in the will of God. Why has not life worked out for me as I hoped it would, as I thought God would work it out for me? Why is it so hard? Our our culture shapes us dramatically. We like to think that it doesn't, but the reality is it does. And we live in an incredibly materialistic time and culture. We live in a Western bubble of success and prosperity, and we expect those things. We are an incredibly entitled people. And we bring that into the church. And actually, the church caters for that. A lot of churches where I've been part of, you know, the sermons are more like TED Talks, inspirational sound bites that, that, that lift us up so that we can fulfill our dream. You can do anything that you can dream. And I want to say to, oh, you know, like, really? You tell that to a parent with autistic kids. You can have anything that you want, really. You tell that to a couple that are struggling with a terminal disease and it doesn't look like it's ever going to change or rebellious kids that have just ripped the family apart or, or and I could name a dozen, one, dozen and one things. People who have gone through a terrible, terrible divorce that they never anticipated would happen to them because they were believers. They loved Jesus and they didn't think that that could happen. And their worlds get torn apart. And they come, why? Why would this be happening? Because we live in warfare. We live in the fallenness of our world. And Jesus didn't say, I will save you from that. He said, I will be with you in the midst of it. I will be faithful to shepherd you through so that this thing doesn't need to absolutely crush you. It will shape you. It will mark you. It will scar you. There are no doubts that those things will happen. But I will be there. That's what he promised. He didn't promise none of those things will touch you. My kids will be safe and I will be safe because I'm in the will of God. Listen, God does want to bless you. But to take that phrase, God wants to bless you, and translate that blessing into into purely materialistic, temporal terms is a mistake. It's to mistake this world for the next it's to, mis- it's, to, it's to imagine that what we are going through uh, you know, is the main feast when actually what we're going through is the hors d'oeuvres before the main feast. Generations before us have always understood that the benefits of following Christ are not primarily found this side of eternity. But in our Western world, we imagine that that would be the way it is. 
We aren't that focused on eternity. We are focused on the here and now and God's blessings in the here and now. Why would I want to follow a God who won't make my life better? I want my life better. So many people just say, I just want to be happy. Oh, man. I know what to say to people like that. Well, you know, it'd be nice to be happy. But I don't think God promised you happiness. He said, I'll give you a deep abiding joy in the midst of the afflictions and trials that you face. And you'll have resources to live in the midst of those circumstances. But our generation has more to live with and less to live for than any generation that's ever lived. And we just, we just don't read the Bible. I'm sorry, we just don't read the scriptures. Jesus said, you do this, you follow me, and, and it's liable to change your life dramatically, not necessarily for the better in terms of the way the world would define that word better. Generations before us always understood that life would be costly and difficult, but the cost of our faith, any cost that our faith might exact from us, is really, really worth paying. Let me just finish by reading a couple of scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and the message says, so we're not giving up, how could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes. I love the, new, I love the message. These hard times are small potatoes compared with the coming good times. He's saying, that they're just the hors d'oeuvres. The banquet awaits. Compared with the good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see will last forever. I think it was Teresa of Avila who once said, the difficulties of this life are like one night in a bad hotel when compared with the eternity that lies before us. And I thought, what a good way of saying it. One night in a scummy hotel. Man, I tell you, I've stayed in some scummy hotels. I don't mean Western hotels. I'm talking about um, Central Asian hotels. We pulled up, you know, that same trip I was talking about the dancing. We pulled up outside a building one time, and the guy went in, and I said, where are you going? He said, I'm just going to check out the hotels ready. And I looked at this building. I thought it was derelict. Honestly, I thought it was a result of the civil war that had just finished. It was just this concrete thing. The glass was broken. There was nothing inside. It looked like it was ready to be bulldozed, and that was our accommodation for the night. And that was one of the better ones that I've stayed in. So I get Teresa of Avila. Life here can be like one night in a really, really scummy, bad hotel. But eternity awaits. Revelation chapter 12. You can't read the book of Revelation and come away saying, God wants to make your life an unbroken sequence of joy, success, security, safety. You cannot read the book of Revelation and come away with that idea. The book of Revelation is written to saints who are in the midst of incredible difficulties. And it was written to encourage them to keep following God in spite of the difficulties. And it goes in chapter 12, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But they were no match for Michael. They were cleared out of heaven. Not a sign of them was left. The great dragon, the ancient serpent, and the one called the devil and Satan, the one who led his whole, the whole earth astray, thrown out, and all his angels thrown out with him, thrown down to earth. And I heard a, stro a strong voice from heaven saying, Salvation and power are established. Kingdom of our God, the authority of the Messiah. 
the accuser of our brothers and sisters thrown out. Now listen, the really, really good news is Satan has been thrown out of heaven. The really, really bad news is we live where he's landed. And we live in the crosshairs of cosmic warfare. He hates you because you remind him of the God who has... Actually, in the, in the original Greek, it means has been bounced out. The bouncers tossed him out. He didn't get in. The bouncers threw him out, and he's really enraged. And because you get in, he hates you, and he's not going to give you an easy life. The world hates you because you remind the world of Jesus, the accuser of our brothers and sisters thrown out, who accused them day and night before God. They defeated him through the blood of the Lamb and the bold word of their witness. They weren't in love with themselves. They were willing to die for Christ. That's the message of the, of the gospel. They loved not their lives unto death. They followed the lamb whithersoever he went. They loved not their lives unto death. They weren't expecting an unbroken you know, graph that was up and to the right. They didn't know what God was going to do. Sometimes God does those things. He does pour his favor, his grace, and his blessing upon you. And when he does those things, you just shake your head and say, I don't deserve this. Thank you so much. How, how do I steward this well? Not, it's my right as a, kid's, a king's kid. I'm entitled. We completely misrepresent the story when we respond like that. We love not our lives unto the death. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's our call. So pastorally, you know, <coughs> when I hear people say, well, I know we'll be safe. I'm in the will of God. Or, you know, I tithed and God didn't cough up. I, 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 it disturbs me. It worries me. And I think people like that are destined for tremendous disillusionment because they have not read the scriptures. They've not read the call. And the call basically was, follow me. You don't know where that will lead. You don't know whether it will lead up or down. For James, you know, you read the Gospels, you've got Peter, James, and John. Wherever Jesus went, they went. You know, Mount of Transfiguration, they get to go. The others got left behind. You've got to think there, there is something being set up for Peter, James, and John. You know, these guys are going to be special in the kingdom of God. Well, you don't get half a dozen pages into the book of Acts, and James is killed. So like, what, what was the point of that? Why go through all these amazing experiences just to have his life snuffed out? Wouldn't you think that God would have said, you know, snuff one of the other guys out. They hadn't seen what James has seen. I want James to tell the world. Well, James didn't get to tell the world. Herod separated his head from his shoulders shortly into the story. You don't read the disciples saying, oh, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, the crazy thing is Peter's next. He gets arrested by Herod because Herod saw how James's death went down among the people. That was good. That, that raised his popularity in, in the electorate. So he decided he'd do the same for Peter. Peter is dramatically, supernaturally delivered by an angel. And you just think, wouldn't James be up in heaven thinking, I'm a bit ticked by this. <laughs> what happened? You know? It doesn't work like that. You sign up and you follow. And however it unfolds, his grace has promised you eternal joy in his presence and, and everything else that happens, just serendipitous bonus 
But if nothing happens and the worst happens, you haven't lost anything he's promised you. It bothers me when I hear people say, come to Christ and your life will be much better. You know what we should just say? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He'll save you from eternal death, from eternal destruction. He'll save you from your sins. He has paid the price so that you can follow him, be reconciled to the Father, and have relationship with the God who made you. He did not promise the rest. Okay? So get it clear in your heads. Um, because this prosperity gospel that God will make life much easier ain't necessarily so. Okay? Let's stand, shall we? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.